Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and uh, I think you're the first in-person guest I've had in a while. His name is Gregory Kufakos. Is that correct? Close. Day right. Kufakos. I was very close. You're close. That was very close. That's very close. Um, and Gregory came to me through some strange places, mm. originally through the great John Joseph of the Cro-Mags. Mm-hmm. And, and like, John Joseph is one of my all-time favorite guests. And he's like, oh, I have this friend, and you should have him on the show. And I was like, okay. And we started, Gregory and I started communicating, and uh, it turned out that Gregory uh, used to work with Chris and Joe Schrank. Mm-hmm. So welcome, welcome to the Dopey Podcast. Thank you, brother. So is it, is it everything you'd expected it to be? Oh my God. And more and it, less. I just want to paint a picture for people. We are on the highest floor of the highest building, panoramic windows. We're they, they know. They're in my dad's apartment in the, in the, in the, in the, in the public housing projects on uh, 8th Avenue. But it, the, the air conditioner is rolling. The air conditioner's rolling. It's a hot one. So it, that... It's yeah. like it's like do the so, right thing out there today. It is, it's man. like a hundred degrees. It it's, is. It's for real. Yeah. Um, so why don't you? Uh, you know, he's an alcoholic. He's an addict. He's a he's gambling addict in recovery. Mm. But like, let's start. I think the Dopey Nation would love to hear about how you uh, your your dealings with Chris because I think everyone, if anyone yeah. comes in with anything about Chris, it's like let's just talk about that first. Yeah, that's a, you know, so I I had worked in the the treatment world, the rehab world for, I think it was probably about six years, something like that. And when I was ready to, you know, get my own practice, right, my own private practice, I started uh, in New Jersey and I was handing out flyers for a family, uh, like, talk that I was doing on how to, how to help your, your loved one if you're a family member in recovery. And I ended up meeting the medical director of this, this program in Brooklyn, Loft 107. Who was the medical director? Bienenfeld. Okay. Oh, that sounds familiar. And he was looking at the flyer, kind of turning it over, turning it over. He's like, he's like you know, I, I run a program in Brooklyn, and we're actually looking to do some family work. So are you interested? And I'm like, you know... Yeah. <laughs> and I took the train. It was a hot as fuck day like this. I took the train into Brooklyn. I was so excited. Uh, he and I, you know, I, I saw the facility, which it was, it was a really, really cool. It was swanky. Yeah. For real. Yeah. And it was a Joe Schrank joint, it as was. we like to say. As Spike Lee has the Spike Lee joint, that was a, an original Joe Schrank joint. Exactly. It, it, it had so much character, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it, and I was hoping, you know, that, that I would get the, the gig, and they gave it to me. So I started running their family program. It ended up morphing into more things, but, uh, you know, probably a week in, as I was still settling, there was this kind of like, uh, you know, polo shirt, you know, Nikes, six foot two. He just he has like this really, really like engaging humble personality, you know, and, and it was Chris. He was the house manager, and he and I, uh, you know, we formed a little friendship there. We, we would talk a lot and uh, laugh a lot, 
uh, argue a lot too, which we'll, we'll get to. I had some different uh, uh, perspective on how addicts get sober and what's required, you know, from a professional. Uh, and uh, Chris, you know, Chris was more of the, um, he's just a very loving you know, caring, caring human being. He's very smart and very goofy at the same time. And, and yeah. it's like, it's, it's like what he's willing to show somebody yeah. and when he's willing to show it. I'm very curious, what kind of arguments about treatment modality did you have with him? I think the, the one that always stands out and it's the one that came to mind when we, you and I first spoke is, uh, I am ruthless when it comes to, um, my interactions with people who are caught in addiction. I, I'm tough, I'm honest, I'm real, but I, I, and I could be wrong, I'm not saying everybody has to be this way, but I, I am the, the impenetrable wall, okay? And Chris, I remember one occasion, was asking, talking, we were getting into a talk about, you know, you need to, don't you need to show more empathy, right? Like, don't you need to be more compassionate? And so that was sort of the gist of it. What does that look like, though, the impenetrable wall versus the compassionate thing? How do those things differ? I'm going to give you the example that I use in my mind, and I I give it to all families uh, that I ever have worked with. If If you're caught in an addiction... You are essentially like a plane that has been hijacked by a hijacker. And here we are, the professionals, the family member, everybody that loves you is talking to you from the control tower. And we think we're talking to you. But what I'm telling everybody is, you are no longer talking to Dave. Dave is hogtied on a floor. You are talking to a hijacker, okay? You need to understand that. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to talk to the hijacker in a certain way while slipping in messages to the person that's hogtied. Who might be able to hear the conversation. They definitely hear the conversation. But first and foremost, I really believe, and this is obvious, any addict wants to know, can they get over on the person that they're sitting across from? Right. Even if you don't think that's what you want, of course, that's what that's you That's how want. you measure the whole thing, because that's what you do as an addict. Yeah, because you're caught. Even if you're totally sincere and you're like, I want to get sober, I'll do whatever it takes to get sober. For me, I, even then, I don't pay a lot of, like, I don't care what people say at the beginning. Because they're children testing limits. They yeah. just want to see what they can get away with. They're poking the wall to see where the weakness is in the wall. Of course. So that's what the impenetrable wall is about. The impenetrable wall is you have to come through me, and I am not going to yield myself to you. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to, you know, be strong. It, it, I'm going to be a force. And... So it, that, by the way, it, it works, but it's very difficult to, to practice it. Like, what do you mean? Well, you're not going to be popular. Well, you're popular with the ones who succeed. Very popular with the ones who succeed. I have a whole 
list of people who have devotees who you've you've devotees. You've, you've, you've you've shepherded them to the good place, yeah. and they're probably grateful. They're very grateful. And then grateful. the ones who don't, they're like, "This dick didn't let me get over, and my life still sucks." And you want to know the fuck him? You want to know the funny thing? I when I worked in rehabs, you you couldn't get around me because you're stuck, right? So you couldn't escape. But in my one-to-one work, I have never had a client that hasn't succeeded if they give it six months. So I don't have people that... Um, That's fascinating. So oh, you're saying that most, if anyone fails, they drop out. Right away. Right. The right. first month to two months. And, I, and I'm up front. And I, and I also, I, I do want to say, I'm not the only game in town. Of course, this is how not, could you be? Yeah, this is not the only way to, you know, uh, conquer the mountain. But it's my way. And it's a way that's worked for, for everybody. So, so let's go I, back to what we were saying, because yeah. I, think, I think there's a lot here to unpack. You know, yeah. you know you're, you're, his book, Gregory wrote a book called The Primal Method, A Book for Emerging Men, and his, his primary focus is dealing with younger men. And I think this is interesting just to start with. You have Chris, mm-hmm. who died a young man. Right. You know, he was 33. And, I think, and by the way, died. by young, we mean, we mean 18 to around 35. Okay, so he died yeah. a young man. Yeah. You met him younger than that. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny because, I mean, and I, I, don't, I don't think I have a lot of guilt around mm-hmm. his death. I have a lot of sadness, you mm-hmm. know, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people came at me after he died, mm-hmm. like, how did you not know? Mm-hmm. You know, and so, like, when you talk about people getting around you or mm-hmm. not getting around you or whatever, mm-hmm. like, I, it wasn't even a thing in my mind. Right. You know, like, it was not, I think I had a lot going on. I had a, yeah. ba- a baby was just born. We just bought a house. Like, I was just, like, right. was in it. But, like, the idea of Chris being the young man who, Got around me, right. you know what I mean. I, I certainly but wasn't you, a clinician. You there know what you I mean? go. I, that I, wasn't I was, your role. I wasn't his counselor. I was his exactly. partner making dopey and his friend. Right. Um. But and when you met him, you were his colleague. Mm-hmm. So like when he's talking to you about compassion, mm-hmm. do you think part of it is him checking where the breach in the wall is just for no time's sake? No, I think I think Chris genuinely identified with and loved people that were struggling with addiction and he just knew how hard of a journey it was yeah and he part of his personality which eventually was his undoing at least when he relapsed the first time was he he had so much care for people that he got too close to the dragon and it sucked him back in what do you mean by that well if you if you identify too much Meaning, if you have so much compassion for what a person's going through, you lose the boundary between them and you. And suddenly, you're now... You're them. You're them. Right. You're having the hard day. You need a drink. You, you've earned the right to... You're to, persecuted like they're yeah, persecuted. Yeah, yeah. Your life isn't working out the way theirs isn't working out. So compassion is a, is a very sharp tool that is incredibly overused in the treatment world, uh, primarily because it's the one that, that, you know, the nurse puts closest to the doctor. It's like, use compassion, use compassion. Compassion is a, it can be a deadly tool. It can be a great tool, but it's overused. So... Well, the fear is, I think, that if you don't lead with compassion, you lose the client. The client splits. And that's not true. So... 
break yeah. it down. Well, you, you lose the client when you don't know what the fuck you're doing. How did you learn this stuff? Uh, I learned it through um, primarily, you know, my, some of my own story, okay? My own, you know, navigating through my own odyssey, my own uh, difficulties. In the treatment world, I just, I literally glummed on to mentors. And when I came in the field, I would say 75% of the people who were the quote-unquote clinicians were people who were just in active recovery. They had no training beyond that. So you could see who the stars of the show were, right? So I, and in the book, I talk about uh, my mentor, Jeremiah, and, uh, you know, he was the one that really laid the foundation for how to, how to, uh, how to show up in this situation and be a force for good and positivity and success. And he was very clear with me. He said, you, you don't really have a control over the outcome. See? So if I'm in a room doing a group with 30 people, he would say, just save one. Okay? How does that work, though? It's like, first of all, before Jeremiah, what was your take? And then what changed with him? Um, you know, I think... I just going back when I when I first started, um, I had some very early success in this. Like I, I remember doing my externship when I was doing my master's degree at Beth is uh, in New School. You know, we were doing a externship at the hospital, and it was clear that I had like a natural knack for just challenging people in a very very loving way, but where it just it forced the problem right to the surface. So there was no hiding, right? And so when people were across from me, even in a detox setting, they knew that this was an opportunity. There was something was present. So I I think that was my natural ability. What filled in the blanks was, um, I mean, learning a lot about addiction and learning a lot about classical recovery. Like, the first question Jeremiah asked me was, you have an addict sitting across from you, and they ask you, they've been using their whole life, and they ask you, can I get sober? What's your answer going to be? Me? Yes. The answer is yes. Okay. For me, I had no clue. Why? Why? I just didn't know. That was so much responsibility. I don't know if you can change your life. I don't even know how you would go about doing that. But everything since that first question until now, and it's going to continue, is about being able to look at someone and say, absolutely. Right. Follow me. Follow what I say. And we're going to reach where you want to reach. You're not going to maybe like the process, but we will get you to the mountaintop. So, I mean, for myself, like, obviously, like, I've been around... uh the block. My mother used to always say that. I've been around the block. Around the times. block. But uh, I, I used drugs from when I was, you know, 20, 19, 18, mm-hmm. I don't know, somewhere around there until I was 41. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I never wanted to stop. Mm-hmm. You know, like, even when I, if I said I wanted to stop, I didn't want to stop. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And 
I never had a, I mean, like, I don't know. There was something in me that, like, I never really had a teacher mm-hmm. that took a shine to me. Mm-hmm. And I never had a clinician that, like, wanted to invest in me. Like, yeah. I just didn't have a life with those things. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's sad, right? I see you're making a sad face. I'm not making sad face. I'll tell you what my face is. Um, but go ahead. But, uh, so, like, if I sat down with you when I was in active addiction... Mm-hmm. I probably would have been looking for the, the, the weakness in the armor or I would have just shut off mm-hmm. and been like, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to go get, I'm going to say whatever I can say and then I'm going to leave and you can't help me because I'm not going to let you help me. Right. Like, is that also the magic bullet? If someone doesn't want to do it, are they fucked? Oh no, that's the best. I w- if, you, if you were going to play that card with me, I would already be one chess move ahead of you. So I nobody I, wanted to play chess with me either. See, I <laughs> see I, that's the thing is I love to play chess. I love the the psychological game of I, I already know. Like you've been using your whole life, you don't want to get sober. I'm thinking, why? Why? Why has this guy never thought about getting sober? I think for me it was a it was a comfort thing and a fear thing. You know, okay. like when I used, I felt how I wanted to feel, and I was scared. I didn't even know that I was scared of life, right? Uh, but I was. You See, know, now, yes. So right, um, and and like when I finally got sober, the adventure unfolded in front of me, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Holy cow!" Like this is all I wanted the whole time, right? You know, but it it, and I, you know, it's funny, like. Uh, when I first got sober, I loved the idea of living in regret, like thinking about all the things I wish I had done differently and, and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And those things are kind of starting to, to, to fade away, thank God. Mm. Um, but I want to take it back to, to the Chris story for mm-hmm. a second because you have – you're doing family work. Right. Chris is managing the house. Right. You know, he probably had a few years sober at that point. I think point. it was like three years. He – he was very into recovery um, in theory. Do you know what I mean? Like he loved the psychology of it. He loved mm. the psychology of addiction. He loved the, the pharmacology of the drugs. Right. And he loved, uh, I think he liked seeing people that were in his shoes. Like mm-hmm. I think, cause he had been in it for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so you come in mm-hmm. tough, family guy and he's like maybe you should be more compassionate and while you're (laughs) with him he's fading yeah that didn't happen right away that he was you know struggling um yeah and and by the way just to contextualize it chris and i we had many many conversations where we i don't remember what we talked about exactly but we we I remember having a really good connection and rapport. I with can him, imagine it. Yeah. You know, so when we had that conversation about the the empathy and compassion, I, I really sensed that it was a genuine question that he was asking me. He's like, "Don't don't you need to have empathy for what they're going through?" It was like in his mind that was a sort of a, a given, right? So it was it was uh, it was a deep question that he was asking. Um, does that make sense? Definitely. I think yeah. I think in his head, he always told me that Joe Schrank wanted him to be. He wanted Chris to get his PhD and right. be the medical guy in his <laughs> the Joe Schrank world. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that was like 
Chris's ambition. And Chris also liked writing. He wanted to be this guy who wrote. He wrote for Salon at the time. He was always okay. putting pieces out into the world, and he mm. and he wanted to be Doctor Chris. And and like Joe mm-hmm. wanted him to be Doctor Chris, and his sponsor, who had uh, Halfway House and the Berkshires, Dylan mm-hmm. wanted him to be the Doctor Chris, and mm-hmm. he wanted Dopey to be Dave and Doctor Chris, and like he he had this great because. He had self-esteem issues, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And he wanted those letters, and, and right. also he had ambition. Right. Um, but, uh, and it's so funny and so sad to, mm. to think about it. You know mm. what I mean? Like, I, I laugh about it because me and him used to make fun of that idea. You mm-hmm. know, it was like the Dr. Drew show, and he was going to be Dr. Drew, and it just right. seemed so unlikely to me. And, and, of course, the tragedy is it didn't happen. Mm. Um, and that's very sad, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like to make a joke about it is one thing, but it's right. that's like the 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 baggage of this show, right? You know what I mean? And 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 I rarely, we don't have people from Chris's life on the show as much as we did when he had just died. Like right. every week was like another component of Chris's life, and mm-hmm. and so this is kind of kicking shit up for me. So yeah, so. well, I mean, the name of the game is uh, don't believe your own hype, ever, right? Uh, don't forget the stakes of the game ever. Right. You, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use, whether it's a war or it's a football game or it's a, it's, you're in an octagon, don't forget. There's no, this is not a picnic. And that's to all of us is this is high stakes. Well, there's a phrase in the book I remember that I loved, uh, I don't remember. You can help me draw it out of there. But you mm-hmm. were you were talking with somebody who was highly spiritual, mm-hmm. and they were talking about what they're willing to. And you were relapsing at the time yeah. in the story, yeah. and they were talking about their spirituality and that their body was their temple. Well, it was their like vehicle. Their vehicle for this life. Exactly, and, and they're not going to put some bullshit into their vehicle. Right. And like that's what you're talking about with this, right. and that's also just. Uh, almost a physiological component of constant vigilance. You right. know what I mean? In 12-step, right. we hear you got to do the work and you got to keep doing the work constantly. And I right. find that to be very much true mm-hmm. for myself, not with, like for me, my vigilance isn't about not going and copying heroin or going and getting weed or going right. to drink. My vigilance is not being a dick, not being a total fucking idiot and like, say, cunt in an AA meeting or, you know what I mean? Like, and I fuck it up all the time because I forget about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, like, my, I'm not treating my vehicle. Like, I can treat my vehicle well mm-hmm. from time to time. And mm-hmm. then the last three nights, mm-hmm. I've put frosted mini wheats, frosted flakes, milk, chocolate syrup twice Yeah, for three nights in a row. Yeah. The vehicle is in trouble. So what are you trying to give your vehicle? What do you, what do you, if you were to drop With it? Game of Thrones reruns. <laughs> and we know that Game of Thrones ends badly. Like, why would I set myself up for that? So what's your answer? It's like some weird reward, some familiar pathway. It's like right. skiing the old rut. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. for what, even though the outcome right. isn't great, there right. is some euphoria when the sugary carb hits my brain or whatever is happening there. It's the closest scalpel next to the doctor. 
I thought compassion was the clue. That's right so, there. First, it's the compassion, then it's chocolate the, syrup covered the point, cereal. The point is, you know, the the tools that we've used, you know, they they're very familiar. They're very easy. Uh, it's my tool. Yeah. Yeah. That's your that's I think your that might be tool. in front of compassion <laughs> for me. <laughs> that might be the first one, um, which so, is frustrating. It's a fr- – because it, it fucks me up. You know right. what I mean? Like, and I want – like when I read that passage in your book, mm-hmm. you know, that this is the only vehicle and that, and that high-level spirituality comes from that sort of high-stakes stuff. Yeah. And it's really like – your spiritual level is kind of how far you're willing to go with it, right? Yeah, I think, you know, just to, again, explain, I, I at that point, was so desperate to shift my life, but I wanted it to be done immediately. So I, I had this vision of going to Mexico and, you know... Ayahuasca. Yeah, or, or peyote or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that. Uh, and that's when this yes, person that's said... What happened, yes. I wouldn't do that. This, my body is my spiritual vehicle for in this lifetime. And in that moment, I, I just understood, you know, that, yeah, there's no, and, and by the way, this is now going back 25 years. So this was a precursor to what is now becoming very popular, which is, you know, seeking out Ex- psychedelic experiences to rewire yourself. Let's let's get back to that because yeah. I'm realizing I feel like I'll do you a disservice if I don't hear what the fuck happened to you. Mm-hmm. You know, so when when did you know that uh, you were an addict at all? Well, because I definitely want to hear your take I, on 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 the psychedelic as the rewiring, as I, the tool, the microdose, all this shit. Yeah, but first let's hear, that, let's, let's that, get your story. A little yeah, bit. I probably should have had an idea that I had a problem when my sweetheart in uh, junior high, I think it was like sixth grade or seventh grade, walked up to me in the hallway and gave me a pamphlet. And I looked at it, and it was a GA pamphlet, <laughs> Gamblers Anonymous. When you were seven year, seven, seventh grade, seventh 12, grade. 13. Yeah, something what like that. What were you gambling on when you were 13? I don't even know. I really don't How know. How does anyone know what Gambling Anonymous is in third grade? I couldn't grade? believe it. My daughter is going into sixth grade. Isn't and that I, insane? I, well, maybe she had like a parent or something involved, <laughs> you know. I don't think so. I think she was just tuned in. She really cared about me. Um, and I, I remember looking at it being like, what? You know, but, but I, always, uh, I always like to raise the bar, push the envelope. I was very intense, very driven. Um, but you don't remember what you were gambling on then? I really don't. What could it have been? Honestly, I, I what comes to my mind is I would gamble you on anything. Uh, you want to bet? Yeah, you want to bet. bet. You right, want to bet. Right, right. We're going to play Madden football. You want to bet. You, uh, we want to play uh, one-on-one basketball. You want to bet. It was just, I just wanted, I just had this drive to make it be about something more than what it was. And I just... Uh, I, and still am, I struggle with intensity. I'm a very, very intense person. And uh, that works for me in many ways, but it also can be, you know, uh, what are they, if all you have is a hammer, everything you encounter begins to look like a nail. You know, you, that can be my tendency, and I have others, you know, we all have uh, that. But, uh, yeah, so for me... That, that's, uh, 
I got into that. Um, I definitely enjoyed um, being introduced to chemicals, cigarettes, alcohol. Cigarettes, I, I really just, for some reason, really loved them. I did too. Yeah, I just, it was great. I miss them still. Like, yeah. Like, in, and not in a normal way. Yeah. Just in like this fantasy way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I go to an outdoor meeting all the time, and I go and I stand near the smokers. Yeah. Um, just to like, I don't want to, I don't want it. I want to smoke, mm-hmm. but I know that even one drag will be like misery. Right. But I, because you I think like, you won't be able to control it. No, no, no. I, first, the, that's the old thinking was there is no one cigarette. There's mm-hmm. only infinite cigarettes, and mm-hmm. I can't, I can't have one because there's only infinite cigarettes. But the new thinking is when I actually imagine putting a cigarette in my fingers up to my mouth, taking a drag, it would feel bad. It would feel like it wouldn't feel the way it felt when I was smoking <laughs> a pack and a half a day. It would feel speedy and crazy. I'd get nauseous. I know that my body wouldn't respond to it the way mm. that it used to. Mm-hmm. And like, so like, if I have a cigarette and it's horrible, like, would I want that? Right. I mean, that's that's how I think about it now. Mm-hmm. And I had that experience with heroin the last time I did heroin. I hadn't done it in a couple of years. Right. And I and I did too much, and I was a bad experience Mm -hmm. and i feel like it would be similar Mm -hmm. but so your first love was nicotine tobacco yeah Yeah, i i I really think for me i was true to my character i never got obsessed with any one thing yeah i just i just and by the way you know this was all on the backdrop of being a very motivated accomplished driven athlete what was your sport football so i made it to the division one level. Uh, I was, yeah. So I had, I had a lot of structure with, with but I I remember that was another thing. Like you talked about being a soccer player. Right. And like the dude, like you weren't measured up for football at first. It was the beating that got you seasoned for football. It was the impenetrable wall. Right. It was this, this guy, the captain who was twice my size, who, um, I, I was trying out for the football team after my whole life of playing soccer. And we had this drill called the gauntlet where you were supposed to take the ball and run it through rows of people. And he was the first guy. And he just refused to let me pass. And that was probably one of my first practices. And, like, I, I guess I had that moment, like, what? Like, aren't you just going to let me kind of run through you and he kept shouting at me get lower get lower and I would get lower and run back at him and get lower and that happened like maybe three or four times and finally I just bit into my mouthpiece and I was like screaming and I, like yeah and I just ran through and he you know maybe he let me through or maybe I, you just did it maybe I just did it but see that's the thing is you don't know what you're capable of until somebody is that wall for you. If they're just going to permit you to walk into whatever it is you say you want, whether it's a, a sober life or a great podcast or a great body, if, it, if it's just going to be handed it to you, first of all, you're going to throw it away in an hour because it was just handed to you, right? You didn't have to work for it. But also, you will never be able to sustain whatever it is that we're talking about. Right. You're going to be a, a one-trick pony. Well, those lessons are like, they're crazy lessons. You know what I mean? They're lessons like, for me, like, I was not 
an athlete. I was not a gambler. Mm-hmm. Like at my meeting, I'm, I'm, this reminds me of my meeting. Like the guys all talk about at my meeting, like that they were so stubborn that like you would beat the shit out of them. Phys- they'd be in physical fights where mm-hmm. you, they would get the shit beat out of them so badly that they'd keep getting up. If someone even like came at me, I'd be gone. Like I would not be that person. I would mm. not keep getting up. I would not go for the wall. When mm. I was a kid, mm. they were like, my my friend took karate, and they were like, "Do you want to go take karate?" And I was like, "All right." right. So I went to the dojo on Twenty Third Street, and mm-hmm. they have you hold, you punch, and then they beat your your fist with a bamboo stick. And I was like, "I'm done." I was like, "Ma, you want to pay this guy to hit my st- my fist with a bamboo stick?" I was like, "This little fucking shit." You know what I mean? And like, yeah. I didn't, I, I, I didn't even know mm-hmm. that like this was, I, it didn't attract me. Like the idea of, of, I, I was like, I wanted to be Ferris Bueller. I wanted to get out of everything. Right. I wanted to manipulate my, my, my way without, you know, gaining so, any kind of skill. I guess the skill, the, the skill I was sharpening was my manipulation. Right? So I, I'm not so sure about that. Cause I, I want to say most of the guys that have worked with me, if you were to meet them or see them, you would not expect that they would be the guys that would work with me. See, the people that work with me, are you, they're not always like these intense, you know, like they're, they could be like what you're saying. So what I would say to you, okay, if we were, let's say, meeting for the first session, you'd be like, I'm just meeting with you because my mother told me I have to meet with you. I'd say, listen, you don't have to do this the way I do this, okay? You can be Ferris Bueller. You can do whatever it is. I don't know what your dream, like what what your destiny is, but I want to help you get there. And I think that I have some, some tools that can help you get to your vision. You don't have to be the guy that gets his hand beaten by a bamboo stick and run through a line like me. That's me. Right. I want to know who you want to be, but clearly, and this is always the line, clearly you're missing an ingredient. Totally. And what I was going to say is like, it it didn't, it didn't occur to me to break through a wall. It didn't occur to me to, you know, stick with the podcast or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think like, I think my lesson came in my late thirties waiting tables, you know, and, and realizing that the money wasn't going to get into my pocket Mm -hmm. without, taking it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i think that was a big lesson for me Mm. strangely enough you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i really worked harder than i had ever worked and i made more money than i had ever made and i as a as a waiter yeah Yeah. and i tried you hustled yeah i was crazy you know i went and Mm -hmm. that was like a real moment for me changing and and like i don't know learning uh and like i think that was a real self that was the that was the phrase chris and i would use in the very beginning of dopey was the Forget 12-step, forget religion, forget anything. Mm -hmm. It was about Mm self-actualization, about becoming the thing that you want to be. And I I got that sense that that's very much what you're about. A hundred percent. We're trying to, that's why I call it, you know, the primal method, which I know that's maybe not the best, uh, who knows if it's the best term, but... I don't think it's a bad term. I think like... You know, I'm a big John Lennon fan, and yep. if you know anything about John Lennon, uh-huh. in the early 70s, he would do this thing called the primal 
Scream. Right. With Yoko and Arthur Janoff or right. Janik. Or, that became a big thing. In the in the 70s. Yeah. And like, I think that people are so afraid of the idea of primal uh-huh. in 2021, mm-hmm. especially around young men. Right. <laughs> I think it scares people. Well. Um, you know, so like. I, I, that, so I, me being the, the amazing marketing genius that I am, I'm like, you should do, you you're, should call you're something else. You know what? What primal for me means is basically what you're talking about with self actualization. Whatever you are meant to become, uh, that's we want to get into that primal innate, the core, the core, right? Like you don't have to teach an oak tree how to become an oak tree. You don't have to teach... They're lucky for that. You don't have to teach a tiger that he's a tiger. Guess what? You don't really need... We don't need that much teaching. It's there. It's just we become so top-heavy in our minds, particularly men. And that's why, as you've read the book, you see that my whole method is about getting out of these rationalizations and... Cookie-cutter ideas. Yeah, it's just... That's not going to shift anything. If you really want to shift your life, you are going to have to get beyond your rational mind. Right, and, and do what comes naturally. Be the oak tree. Be yeah. whoever you're meant to be. Now, when, when you're young, mm-hmm. right, because, you know, you were, we're young, you're, you're drinking, you're smoking, you're, yep. you're, the wall, you're breaking the wall. Yes, and, and that's big time. an actualization. Like, right. You're you're probably getting great, you know, euphoria, self esteem, and and good feelings from from being a football player and 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 living that out. Right. And, and as the addict and alcoholic is rising in you, how do those two things conflate? Well, I think how how it conflicted is conflict that, is better than conflate. I think conflate's the wrong word. Sorry. Oh, is that I, what you said? I apolog- no, conflict. They is got the right word. they I got apologize. conflicted. They got conflated because I um, it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So clearly, it wasn't enough because even I, I got to the ranks of playing Division One football at the University of Arizona, which is a top, you know, school football-wise, and it just was never enough. It turns out now I can see that what I was missing was, first of all, uh, spirituality, like practical spirituality, you know, uh, the the variety that is talked about in in the twelve step way, like you need to find a way to make spirituality a living, breathing, exciting thing for you in your life. So that was missing. Um, but then I, I really have come to learn, and I'm still learning. There's a lot of things that are missing in terms of how we teach boys to become men. And if you, if you don't know the process of going from boyhood to manhood and you stall out, those, those distractions and destructions, that's when they glum onto us. So a, a lot of the next level of my work is about that journey to masculinity. Well, in your actual personal journey, because we're in that phase where you're a young man mm-hmm. and, and, what was your transition, your transformation, becoming a man like? How did it get stunted? Or because obviously yeah. that's the core of your of your thought now, so that must right. reflect your own experience. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's a deep question. 
I don't know. I got to think about that one. Well, so what what went wrong? Because I know that uh, U of Arizona is a big football school. And yeah. It's a big party school, right? Yeah, it's a, it was, there was some, a lot of, uh, you know, I didn't really network. I never got into the whole college party. I, I went to, like, the more darker, you know. What did it look like? Uh, more gambling, more crime, more drugs. Just uh, What were you gambling on in college? That would have been, uh, in college, it was, it was uh, sport gambling. I got really heavy into, you know, betting different lines on, you know, sport events. Uh, and it became, it became very obsessive for me. And, and still to this day, I have to be very, very careful around anything that can be construed as gambling, like cryptocurrency, like the stock market, because something, it just activates that old... What is it, though? It's like I have, a, I have a great friend who I work with at the restaurant. Yeah. And I've always been very fearful of gambling. Yeah. And, I, and I, I think I'm fearful of gambling because it's so out of my control. Right. It makes me so uncomfortable. Right. The idea that I could, that I could be wrong. Right. You know, and then I lose and I suck because I pick the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And that's like so... I, I, that doesn't turn me on. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like I can't... It makes me uncomfortable as mm-hmm. hell. And then I think about, oh, I'm such an idiot, I didn't do it, so I don't do it. Right. Like, what's the opposite of that? Well, so I think you mentioned something about how you realized when you got sober and your, that life took off that that was all that you ever wanted. I think for me, all I ever wanted on the one hand from gambling was to make enough money that I could feel that sense of peace and security that I'm like... I don't have to fight anymore. Like I can. So you thought that if you won, yeah, you would you would be that guy. Yeah, but I think I never won. I think like, or it was it was like if I won, it would be like I can't. It's like it can't be. Right. Whereas if you won, you were like, this is how it's supposed to be. If I if I won big, right. That's the that's the deep illusion for me. But the surface level of, of illusion was it just wasn't enough for me to just watch a sport game. Or you needed stakes. Yeah, I needed stakes. I wanted to. I wanted to make it more. Let's. Hey, Dave. Let's make this a little more exciting. Let's make it interesting. Let's make this interesting. Right. You know who? Do Can you, you watch sports now? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Can, that's that's. I don't. Uh, I don't have. You know, any desire to. Yeah. When gamble. when when the gambling. Because I remember reading that you were like thirty grand in the hole one semester, something yeah. crazy. Like when it starts elevating like that, like mm. what makes you take a look at it? Well, when it started ele- elevating, Esca- I guess escalating. Yeah, when it word. when it escalated for me, uh, I had a first of all, I I lost a sizable amount, and then I made it my mission to pay that because I didn't know kind of who I was dealing with. Right. But then when I lost, you know, 30 grand and this is in 1996. Right. So do the, and you're a kid. Yeah, I'm a kid. Uh, then I knew at least the, the math. I, I got to a point where I'm like, there is no way that I can pay this back. Like, I just can't do that. Um, and I had a lot of terror uh, and a lot of like. I just was really high strung. And that's when one night this sort of vision came to me 
that I should leave the United States and move to Greece, which is where my father's from. And I remember feeling like, huh, now that's an interesting thought. You know, I can move and start over. And so that's what I did. Before you moved to Greece, what yeah. was the drug situation? Uh, I was a lot of, mostly uh, marijuana, alcohol, a little bit of Coke starting to come into the picture. Because I remember when you got to Greece, you were like, I'm not, you were clean. Yeah, I was clean. So it wasn't, was it, was there any like bad walking away from it? Not really. And there would have been also some, some opiates there too. Oh, because uh, you got hurt. Yeah, because I was, you know, I was exposed to that. But again, I think one of the advantages I had, because I was so much of what could be called a garbage head, I never had any one thing that really sunk its claws into me, you see? Because I, I, like, I had a diversified portfolio. Absolutely. So for me, it was, a, it was gambling, it was this, it was that. So for me, the hardest thing was just, you know, I guess making that leap to walk away and face ma- that unknown. It makes me think about Chris again. Like, mm. either way, you, Chris, me, mm-hmm. Joe Schrank, whoever, right. we all have a spiritual malady when we're out there. You yes. know what I mean? Like, that's the deal. Mm-hmm. Chris was like, I, I like to make a joke that he was the worst drug addict in the world. And mm-hmm. he, obviously, he wasn't. But he was a bad drug addict. You know what I mean? He had so many claws embedded in him that it makes me wonder yeah. when he's talking about compassion in those situations, it's mm-hmm. because he's fucking strung out, heroin addict, crack addict, like fucking mm-hmm. end of the road. Like I was talking to my friend this morning about Chris. Chris used to drive around in his car with like a, a syringe full of Coke and a syringe full of dope and have somebody hit him with the dope while he hit himself with the Coke. Mm-hmm. Like that was something he did. Mm-hmm. He's like a lunatic. Yeah. So do you think that maybe when he's like, you should have more compassion. He's almost testing the fact that you weren't in the sh- those shoes. Like, I think Maybe. you're almost more equipped <laughs> yeah. to deal with it because you weren't in those shoes. I, I, I've had that thought myself sometimes. Um, I, I really can't say, but I, to that spiritual malady thing, you know, that spiritual malady never goes away. Okay, unless and until I tell this to the guys I work with, if and when I achieve guru status, I'll let you know. And it will be through a, an act of burning bush. Until then, I have a spiritual malady. Now, I've, I've filled more of my cup, and that licenses me and authori- uh, gives me the authority to turn to a man who's uh, not as far along on the journey and say, listen, I've gone a mile, two, three, five, ten up the mountain. I can tell you how to get to whatever mile you want to say up this mountain. And I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you some shit that I read in a book or even some shit that I wrote in a book. I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to get to mile ten on this mountain. And I'm not going to deceive you, and I'm not going to lie to you. And if I'm not sure, I'm going to tell you, because this mountain is not fucking around with us. So I'm not going to fuck around with you. If, I, if you hear it from me, you can damn well be sure it's going to work. Is the mountain 
Addiction or is the mountain life? Who cares? It's both. I would, if, I were to, if I were to give you my take on it, I would say the mountain is life and addiction is the elements, one of the many elements that the mountain uses to challenge a man, right? Well, I love your, the addiction as, as hog-tying you and hijacking the plane. I, I like that, that, yeah. that, that visualization. So you go to Greece. Yep. You're, you're like, fuck this. I'm done. I'm done. America, you know, I'm Goodbye. done. Going to the fatherland. Yep. Father's Greek. That's right. You barely spoke the language. Spoke nothing. Gave up all of your vices. Did Everything. you give up gambling when you got there? I had to. Right. That was the one. See, Greece, that was the one that I tried to... Uh, wiggle in in Greece, but they are so the men there are so ravaged by the effects of addiction or uh, uh, gambling addiction that to gamble at a casino you have to show proof that you have that money. Right. So you literally have to bring your tax forms. Wow. To say I can gamble X amount of dollars. Why here. is that? Because these guys will mortgage their whole fucking lives, and they'll put their families out on the streets you know, gambling. So the government uh, has very strict, at least they did then. I don't know what they do now, but then you had to show proof of funds. And I tried to go to the casino and they denied me. They said, you don't, you don't have enough. And so, I, yeah, I had my jacket on. I was trying to like... You're trying to do it up. I was trying to do it. Yeah. So thank God. Um, and I was just going there with a friend. I wasn't, I didn't have any ideas well, you got you got lucky probably because that would have probably re-triggered or re, oh for re- sure burned it up. So, what was your experience there? Like, what happened there? Oh, my experience there was magical. It was absolutely magical. Uh, it was 1997, I believe. Yeah, I moved there at the end of '96. This was the year while I was in Greece, the internet was created. Right. So when I was there. The only two things that could uh, be associated with America in Greece was the USA Today, and every day at 4 p.m., they played one episode of Beverly Hills 90210. Perfect. You were like Dylan showing up. That was it. Okay, so I'm, I'm in this country that's bathed at that time in history that is almost untouched by, you know... Western Yeah. World. This modern Western. So movement. there's no, not much rock and roll, no TV, none of that. There was shit. no TV, none. Um, rock and roll, probably the young people, you know, especially through the British kind of link, you know. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, what people did there. We, we'd go at night and go to see live Greek music. Right. Like even people in their 20s, you know, it, it, that's what you did. Greek. It was Greek. It's all Greek. It was all Greek to right. us. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, one thing that happened to me that was very fortunate is right before I left to go to Greece, uh, I got a gift from the spirit and it was that my whole trip in Greece should be about learning the Greek language. So when I went to Greece, I took all my intensity, all my obsessiveness, all my drive, and I channeled it all into learning to speak Greek. Because that was the mission. That was the mission. And, and not only to speak Greek, but to be Greek, to become this Greek. To find who you, part of who you are. Exactly. Maybe I was yearning. I probably was yearning for that, right? And um, so 
yeah, I stayed there for seven months. I had a job. I had uh, some friends. Um, and when it was done, it was done. And I came back. And, uh, and when I came back, I remember I, I came to New Jersey for maybe a month before moving to Arizona. There was a marked difference in who I was. I mean, I was a changed person. I had matured. I had grown. You went on a, a spiritual journey, and you, you reaped some spiritual benefits I and did. some just worldly benefits. I did. You know, that's kind of the self-actualization thing. Right. But So what undid it? So, so here's the thing, though. If you had stopped me on the tarmac, me getting off in Arizona, and you said, do you realize that within a year you will not only be back where you were before you left for Greece, but you'll be worse. My honest answer to you would have been, Dave, that thought hasn't even crossed my mind. Like, that's how off radar it was. It's, you it was clueless. Right, but you didn't have the self-knowledge. No, I mean, I think, like, how could you, though? I mean, like, I, don't, I think, hey. you're, you know, you're young. Yeah, you've been young. through something, and now you feel good, and you're like, "Fuck it, let's bring it on." Yeah, I thought I was. I, I that wasn't even on my radar, right? Um, what happened is I I started meeting people, uh, mostly from the East Coast. You know, a lot of uh, relocated criminals, and uh, started getting back into that world. And it was just, you know, it was just a game of. I'll trade you. I'll trade you this virtue for this. I'll trade you, and it just like what do you mean? What virtue? Um, like I don't know. I just threw that out there. I, I just feel it's more like I was I wasn't being true to myself anymore. Well, when I read it, when I, I remember, there's a scene in the or scene. There's a part of the book <laughs> in a, a pizza place. Yes. And you're like, "What's going on?" Like, because mm-hmm. it it spoke to you because you're from the East Coast and like, yeah, you know. And then and then like all of a sudden you're like, "Well, maybe I can smoke weed too." Yeah. You know, like, and then once I mean, for me, I don't think I learned anything until I learned that it's the insidiousness of it. Like mm-hmm. when you when you add anything to this solution. All bets are off. You know right. what I mean? Like your, your, your balance is off. Whatever you had built up, mm-hmm. but you didn't drink in Greece. I did drink. Okay, so you did. I did. Okay. But, I, but it was controlled. I have to say, I wasn't... In Greece, the drinking is like part of life. Society. Yeah, so it wasn't... It wasn't and in fact, that might have even been something that was good for me to see. the whole thing. Yeah, it wasn't like, oh, wow, it's Friday, Saturday. Let's go out and get annihilated. Right. It was just like we eat, we have a glass of wine, we're done. But you didn't. So you weren't getting annihilated in Greece. No. And you weren't tempted to get annihilated. No, I wasn't. But the annihilation returned when you came back to the States. Yeah, but it, it never had it never had that same quality of like the weekend warrior, you know, that that kind of like what people are taught in American or or they were at least taught that. Go hard in the weekend. This is how you do week, it. Right. Yes. You are, you are a 17-year-old boy. You must go, you know, get extremely drunk and high, you know, this weekend or whatever. It's, right. I'm going to get fucked up this yeah, weekend kind yeah. of thing. And not only I'm going to, I have to. It's funny because I never even thought about that. Mm. Like, I never thought about that, that, the, the, that there is some sort of societal pressure on, 
you know, social drinking to the point of too much. Mm-hmm. Like that just, I never even thought about that, but it's totally true. I yeah. think for me, like I, I couldn't drink, so I went straight to drugs. And then once I did drugs, I was like, I want to do more drugs. And that wasn't particularly right. societally acceptable. A lot, of, a lot of forming the good life is about giving yourself permission, clear permission to do certain things. Like be sober. You can give, it's okay. In fact, it's great to be sober. It's okay to be a great student in school. You don't have to be a fuck up. Right. Somebody told you that and you're not innocent because you believed it. Right. You You, bought it. You bought it. Somebody sold you that and you bought it. And you want to know why they sold it to you? Because they gave up on their dream and they need you to give up on, their, on your dream so that they feel themselves. better about themselves. Right, right, right. Lowering all expectations. Exactly. Lowering all bars because then we're all a bunch of fuck-ups. Exactly. And you don't threaten me. No. Because I, I'm a fuck-up too. I'm a fuck-up too. Right. So like when you're in Arizona mm-hmm. and you're like, and all of that kind of shit that you had gained starts to diminish, like what was the, the moment where you're like, this, I fucked it up? What was the moment? Probably that, again, I, my consciousness was so immature and so unclear at that time that I don't know that there was a moment, but the one that I would point to is that moment when I told this friend of mine, I am going to go to Mexico. And I'm right. gonna, yeah, because for me, that's when I started to realize how messed up my life was. And even when I let go of certain things, like certain drugs or certain behaviors, it was already too late. Like, I already felt that my life, and I hear this from every young man, not every, but a lot of them. A lot of them say it, but everyone looks it in their eyes. They feel that they've done irreparable damage to and it's them. over. It's over. Right. I'm going to meet with a guy to, uh uh, on the weekend, and all his parents are telling me is this is what he's saying. Right. He's 22. Right. He has a degree in like engineering. He thinks his life is over because of X, Y, Z. What an exciting job you have, though, to be honest with you. That's hey, a, that sounds very exciting. It is. Um, now, before I even get to there, though, mm-hmm. I love that story in itself. And it was kind of like a weird wake up call to me just to read that. You're struggling. You went to Greece to be better. Mm-hmm. You're home. You're not feeling better. You're like, well, maybe if I do what the fucking ancient, you know, indigenous people did, I'm right. going to find myself. Right. And this guy's like, dude, I, I mean, like, if I want to live a spiritual life, I'm not going to put something else into me. No. I'm going to figure out how to deal with what I have. And you're exactly. like, wow, I want to try that. And he was really living it. How did you know? I just felt it. Right. I knew it. And I knew him. So I, but I just, I could feel it. It was like every word that he spoke, it was clear that he, he got it. Like he got it. And for me, that was my moment when I realized that everything I was searching for was what that person had. Right, and that's like the ultimate thing where it's like attraction. You yes. know, you see something that you want, and it's like, if I do what this guy does or did, maybe right. it can happen for me exactly. too. Exactly, and he didn't prescribe anything to me. 
So a big part of my method, what I realize, which I call the, the mirror effect, is that the guys that I work with get better just by being around another man who is living uh, passionately and following his dream. Right. They, they change more just by hanging out with me than they would if I sat them down and said, ask them questions about their life and ask them questions about how they feel. Why do you want to know? And this is to my field. Okay. Why do you want to know how they feel to be in a ditch, to be in hell? They want to get out. So do you have a way out or do you not have a way out? Well, it's like, it's like, it reminds me of two things. One thing it reminds me of is like when you're in AA or something and you, the idea when you want to sponsor is you find someone that has what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the phrase. Yeah. And then the other thing is like there's an old, have you ever heard the old bit about like the addict that's in the bottom of the well and he can't get out and so there's an addict down in a hole mm-hmm. and there's a guy who walks past and he's like uh, he's like uh, help I need help get me out of the hole and the guy's like I don't know what to do and he keeps going and he keeps going or maybe some guy brings a rope and he tries to pull him out he can't get him out of the hole uh-huh. and then an addict comes by and the guy's like help 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 and the addict jumps into the hole uh-huh. and he says he says now <laughs> you're stuck in the hole and he says no 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 I, I know how to get out of here I know where the steps are out of here okay you know yeah it's a 12 step thing I like that um and I didn't tell it very well. The, you guy, did, you, the, yeah. guy, the guy who told it told it. I, it was great. Um, <laughs> but the point is, this guy showed you what you wanted. Right. And, and, and so what did you do to actualize it at that point? Before I get into that, there was something that you said um, that really resonated. Uh, it had to do with that story. Oh, you said when, when, the, when the, the student wants the master or when the sponsee wants the sponsor, asks them, right? Because he wants what they have. So who should do most of the talking in that equation? The sponsor. Okay. And who should do the listening? The sponsee. Okay. So what's this idea about somebody who's stuck in a hole is going to be talking, you know, constantly about how bad their life is. All they're doing and all you're doing by doing that You're not decreasing your shame. You're not doing any of that. All you're doing is solidifying your story that you're stuck. If you really want to change, learn to listen. Find somebody that can teach you a way out. Because while you're talking, you know what you're doing? You're just increasing your self-centeredness and your self-importance. You're just expanding this world of me, me, me. Right, right. You're, you're like a pig in shit. You're enjoying... You're, you're a you're, pig in your shit. Right, right. I loved being in my shit when I was, when I was a big fat pig. I, 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 I mean, and, and because you don't really want... That's, and that goes back to the first thing. You don't really want to change. No. And, um, and, and what you're saying is you're kind of, you know, you're, you're speaking a little bit against kind of traditional therapy. Yes, I am. Like what happens in traditional therapy. Right. That it's like a bunch of questions like why are you like this or Mm -hmm. as opposed to it's like it's another great cliche. One of my favorite cliches is you can't think yourself into right action, Mm -hmm. but you can act yourself into right thinking. Right. And talking yourself into right action seems pretty implausible too. I I think so. And yes, there are times where we need to kind of you know, hear our own voice as we're warming up to doing something. But for the most part, again, what I've found working with emerging men, men that are trying to move from boyhood to manhood, 
is that a lot of the questions that traditional therapy focuses on engages the part of their mind which, number one, isn't even fully developed. And number two, it isn't the source of change. It, so you're, it's not... It doesn't me, help. It might help a little bit, but I can tell you if you were to observe me engaging a young man's rational mind, you would be surprised. It's a very... Um, I, like, it's very energetic. If we're going to engage your mind, I'm going to make sure that I'm seeing how you really think about things. Right. No, I think that's interesting. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Because, and, and, because it's very sex specific. Young mm-hmm. men, young men, young men. Right. Boys to men, masculine and Boys to men. ABC, BBC. Sorry, forgive me, forgive me. But, so like in this world, in 2021, you're having transgender, you know, all these crazy or new shifts in gender identity. And let's even, we can put those out. What about girls to becoming young women? It's, I guess when I was thinking of the question, I was like, well, I guess it's none of Gregory's business because he's not a woman. But like, right. would you ever want to incorporate a woman into the Trek philosophy so that, you know, you have both sides? Yeah. Because our audience is a lot of women in the audience. Yeah. I mean, my, I'm sure they feel left out. My statement to, uh, my statement to that is I was given a task. My task was to shepherd young men who identify as young men, up an impossible mountain. And we did it. And we continue to do it. So that was my task. Now, if and when there's a new task, a new task, then we will broaden it. But my task was, I'm sure you can relate. You have kids, right? I have two girls. Okay. So, but if you had a, if you had a son, like you put yourself in these parents' position, they bring their 22-year-old kid, mm-hmm. All they care about is, can you get my 22-year-old from point A to point B? They don't care what your religious beliefs are. They don't care who you voted for. They don't give a shit whether you believe in masks or vaccinations. All they want to know is, can you take my son who's dying, and can you show him how to live? Can you save his life? Can you help him save his life? Right. Yes. Right. And so that, to me, really narrowed my focus into a laser like well and i appreciate that i think it's just an important question it's a very important question i also um what was i gonna say um you know i was every time my parents took me anywhere i was just like i don't know that i was unhelpable but like i never got any help right um oh yeah that's the question Mm -hmm. the question is like when i Think about what you do, and I and 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 in the book, there's just case after case after case of really cool sort of adventures that you have with these kids mm-hmm. or young men who are addicts, and they find something that they love, and you bring it out, right? With, whether it's surfing or rock climbing or cooking or or just living in the community, mm-hmm. and I think all of those things. The, my favorite thing is like the lesson. Like, the lesson in surfing is how to, how to find balance. You know what I mean? Similar lessons is about balance and about not throwing your weight in the wrong direction and, and, and tumbling, which is what we all kind of do. But the thing that, the, the practical question is, is it only super wealthy people that you can help? Like, what do you do? You know, like, how, how do you use your philosophy to help people that can't fucking go surfing and rock climbing? Again, that's the next task. Right. Because... Up until this point, it was very specific. It was 
people who had tr mostly either they tried what's out there and it failed. They were so far gone that everybody knew that it wasn't going to work. Or their parents just picked up on like, come on, Dave Gregory, he's not going to go to Brand X. Like, you got to throw something. Let, let this lunatic take him, you know, surfing. And do see something. If, yeah, do something. I, I, it's like, I, I love it. And I also, like, we had a thing that happened with Dopey. And, and I feel like this, maybe I should have started here, but we had this thing that happened with Dopey where it was, you know, when Chris was alive, I would often make fun of addicts who were on methadone or uh, suboxone. Because mm -hmm. I had been on them and it never worked for me. And I right. was just like, whatever. I was a jerk off. And after Chris died, there was a huge population of our audience that were still on medicated assisted treatments. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want to fucking be a jerk off to these people that are trying something to save their lives. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So I was like, you know, I, I support whatever you guys are doing to get well, whatever mm -hmm. it is. You know what I mean? Like, Whatever it is, I support it if it's, if it's making you have a more fulfilled, happy life. Mm -hmm. And there's a woman in New Hampshire that wrote me this email, and she was, you know, she was a heroin addict who was smoking weed and, and taking Suboxone, but, but living a better life. And she said, I was never interested in recovery until I got into Dopey, and, uh, and that Dopey is part of the vanguard of the alt-recovery movement. Mm. She called it, and I was like, yes, that mm. sounds awesome. Mm. And then, so we kind of thought about that. That should like, be your tagline. Which that? The vanguard of the alt. No, it's on a drugs addiction and dumb shit. Are you kidding? Like, that's about right sizing or not. But right, that's, but that's the thing. I love mm -hmm. the vanguard of the alt-recovery movement. Yeah. And then a bunch of us started talking about, well, what is the alt-recovery movement? Mm -hmm. And the alt-recovery movement is anything that you can do to change yourself. And that's why you fit so perfectly. Mm. Don't you think? Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, you know, first of all, there's a saying that it, I think it's a Polish saying, not my, not my circus, not my elephants. So in other words, unless you're working with me, I have no say in what you're doing. Right. Okay. It's like none of your business. None of my business. Right. If you come with me, you're going to hear how I do it. Right. Number two, um, oh man, you really, that was a good one that you just said, uh, the alt recovery. Here's the thing about alt recovery. Addiction has morphed itself. So the fighter that you fought a decade ago, he's changed. He's a great shape, shape shift. Yeah, he's shape shifted. Right. So therein lies the need for alternative methods. But a lot of these alternative methods... Hey, again, not my circus, not my elephants, but I can verify that this phenomenon, I call addiction a phenomenon. It's not a problem. It's a phenomenon. It is morphing. It is changing. So the, the, the opponent that I fought 15 years ago when I got into this field is very different. But guess what? I can adapt too. See? Yeah, you take the shape the, the shape that you need to take to undo it for the person. And, the and person I will. Well, that's awesome. I love that. And I think, uh, I just think that it fits together nicely. I think that my favorite part about it mm. is it's like recognizing the person. And, and, like, let's, and, and I get the not your circus, not your elephant, but right. certainly everyone that listens can't be under your big top. Right. But they're out there, and right. they want to have a better life, too. Right. So when we're dealing... What I always say is you find something you like. Right. And, and do it. 
of course, enjoy it. You know what I mean? And like, you can still benefit from this idea, from the primal method or the Trek method by themselves so they can have some self-actualization. Totally. I wrote this book. I spent four years, four years laboring over this book. Be honest. How is the book? I think it's great. Okay. That's a result of a lot of work. And the reason that I did that is because I wanted to put this book in somebody's hands that was in the position that I was in and that I could give them something that says, hey, read this. This works for these people. This yes. is what worked for me. This is what we did. So it was, it, I did my job. I put the book together in a way that I believe that people can read it and they can something. And I do, I get messages from people that have read the book or listened to a podcast and they're like, I get it. Thank you. Not all of them are saying like, Oh, where do I sign up? You know, it's thank you. The book made sense. So it's not for me, the, the, the way they can move into this path that we are on is they'll read the book. Because the book was done to give that message. How, um, how do you know John Joseph? John Joseph, I met, um, I don't, I think I met him, uh, he, he's trained me a little physically. bit. Physically. Yeah, physically. So he, he helped me get ready for uh, a 48-mile run. run. Awesome. Yeah. He's a trip. He's great. I'm going to run with him uh, this week. We're going to go out in this, this uh, you know, I'm, I'm here for, for a week. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're going to go for a run, and he, he's going to, you know, take me to a restaurant. A nice, nice vegan thing. Vegan. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's, it's great, man. It's, it's really, really great. He's a great person. Well, he, he sat there when, uh-huh. when we did the show, and, like, uh-huh. I know he's this big Lower East Side guy, so yeah. I'm talking cats as cats as, and he's like, dude, I'm fucking vegan. Like, he was <laughs> like, I, I was like the devil to him by the end of it. <laughs> I also bother him. He's coming back on the show because we're going to talk about his, his new discipline book and all that yeah. shit, you know, which I love. Um, do you feel like there was any stone left unturned in uh, anything you want to get out there to the Dopey Nation? Because um, I would hate for you not to feel like you... Uh, I think... I mean, I feel like your message has been very clear and very cool. I, I, I think I'm really just incredibly grateful to be here, you know, with you. I'm thankful. Um, I, I really enjoyed this. Cool. Me and, too. And uh, I would just say, yeah, enjoy the journey. Dude, do you want to read an email, a dopey email before we go? Sure. All right, here we go. Hold on. Okay. So you're going to read it? Yes, I'm going to read it. Oh, wow. He's from... Can I say where he's from and all that? All, I think all he wants you to do is make sure you call him Sean D, right? Okay. Right? Is that what it says? Yeah, but he's, he's from my neck of the woods. Hey, read it. interesting. Read it, man. Yeah, he's from North Carolina. Um, Sean D. Uh, this is unfolding right now and a true story. I've been sober since April 6, 2018 from opiates, coke, booze, and many others. Sunday, I was supposed to take my oldest sister to the airport to go to her first treatment in 25-plus years of active heroin addiction and more overdoses than I can count. Saturday night, she had multiple seizures from benzo-induced epilepsy. We postponed to yesterday. The treatment center was awesome about it. 
I picked her up yesterday and she nodded out immediately in the car. I knew in my heart of hearts she'd had her last, she'd had a last hurrah. But I pressed on. I got her in a wheelchair, even brought, even bought a cheap plane ticket so I could go in, not knowing they'd let me in with a gate pass anyway. And a woman was there who was a sober escort. She said, honey, I'm sorry, but they won't let her in like that. I do this for a living. I'm a recovering addict myself. My heart sunk. I knew she was right, but I'm hard-headed, and I tried to keep course. I was desperate. The airline employees approached me and explained the same thing. I broke down in tears. I just wanted to get her there while she was still willing. They refunded my ticket and allowed her to, to date hers out. But due to her condition, they had to call the medic for liability. My sister was not happy, but too lethargic to put up a fight. I promised I'd stay with her. She pulled me in and said, Sean, I want to go to treatment, but they're going to find heroin in my system and they won't let me go. I said, it's okay, Mary. I talked to them already. They'll still take you, I promise. She started having that sleep apnea breathing, and I knew she was close to overdose. The medics showed up right then. One medic bent down to her and said, Mary, I didn't take this job to judge people. I don't do it to put people's mistakes in their face. I do it to help people, and I'll help you if that's okay with you. I cried again. Most medics, and there have been a lot, treat her like a useless junkie. I stayed with her at the hospital that all night. They hit her twice with Narcan. When she finally came due, she, was, she admitted she was doing about a gram a day for a little while again after almost three years with nothing but methadone or subs. I told her, it's okay. I probably would do everything the same as you. This is what we do. She said, but now I can't go to treatment. She had forgotten. I told her we were already rescheduling her flight and escort, and we'd try again tomorrow. She cried with joy. We talked for hours openly and honestly the way that only two junkies could. She didn't know how, uh, um, that much about my addiction, and I think she blamed herself for a lot of it. For years, I did too, and I wrote her off no matter how similar we are. I absolved her of any responsibility and asked her to forgive herself because I had long ago. The steps gave me a new perspective, and I knew I needed to be of service to her. I took her home, got some sleep, and we're going to try again today. I say all this to ask for well-wishing from Dopey Nation, but also to say to anyone still out there, you're worthy of love and recovery no matter how far it's gone. And it's never too late. And if you can't get to that point yet, that's okay too. You're still worthy. Even though she's not back to quote-unquote normal, I still got my sister back because of my attitude change. If you have a loved one who is frustrating the shit out of you because of what they haven't got because they haven't gotten to recovery yet, try to love them as they are. She just needed to know that I still loved her and believed in her. And goddamn, I hope when if I relapse, someone looks at me the way the same way. Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. That's great. Great reading too. Very emotional. Mm. Um, but it's like, that's a beautiful thing. And, and, and I it think is, man. the fact that, uh, that you help so many people and that, um, 
that you have a philosophy about yeah. it. Like, I think that's awesome. What do you think about that thing? I loved it. And I want to tell you, the, the missing piece that I want to say is it's all love. Right. It's all love. That's the thing. It, people might hear about my way or my method. They might think this or that. It's love. It's looking to another person and say, I believe in you. And I believe in you so much that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push on you until we make it. And if somebody crumbles, what do you do? They won't crumble. That's the gift. You know, you know how to hold the cookie just enough so it doesn't crumble. But what if the cookie crumbles? It won't crumble. What if it melts in your hand on you, a hot day? It won't. Milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hands, buddy. All right. Um, <laughs> Gregory, thank you so much for coming through. I hope uh, I had fun. I had fun, too. It was sweet. Good um, to meet you. And at the end of these things, we always say, uh, we say, stay strong, dopey nation. And Chris always said toodles, which I hated. So now I have to say fucking toodles for Chris. But would you like to take us out? Sure. Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles. Chris. Beautiful. And, and the fact that you knew him is, you know, it's one of those things, mm. you know, because uh, there's only a limit. You know, his par- I'm going to do a double ending. His parents uh, and his sister just did a film about him. Mm. And I think they did it for the family. So I think there's going to be a Chris documentary coming out soon for their family. And hopefully Dopey Nation can see it, too. But it's deep. Mm-hmm. It's crazy, like mm-hmm. that you were in his story, and then mm. you're here, and like it was random, and I love that. It's not, yeah. it's not easy for that kind of stuff to happen. Yeah, I agree. So one more time, stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris, and thank you, Gregory. Wanna take a walk around the world? I wonder what it do me. Get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. Cause I wanna be so good, so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be so good, so all I've ever had I I wanna take a ride up in the sky and watch the airplanes just pass me by I wanna see a Learjet liner take a dive show all the people what it means to be alive Cause I wanna be so good, so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad Wanna be so good, so bad